Hello, welcome to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is John Meadowcroft and I'm a reader in public policy here at King's. And today I'm joined by Shelby Grossman, who's a researcher at Stanford University in America. Hello, Shelby. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, Shelby, you're involved at the moment in a research project on the politics of order in informal markets. I believe you're working towards um, a, a book as part of that project. Well, maybe to begin with, I think your research looks at informal governance in, uh, in, in parts of Africa. I mean, why did you study in Africa? Yeah, so my, my research interest was actually originally in ethnic minority trading groups in general. So specifically, I was fascinated by Lebanese communities in West Africa. Um, so many West African cities have, uh, have these Lebanese communities that in some cases dominate certain parts of the economy. And I was interested in in variation in self-governance among these Lebanese communities. So I, in some cities that I had been to previously, these Lebanese communities were extremely tight-knit, and if one member of their community violated local norms, they would sanction that person in some way. And then in other West African cities, so for example, Abidjan and Cote d'Ivoire, the Lebanese were actually quite divided among kind of generally generationally based on when they had come to, to Cote d'Ivoire. And so I wanted to explore that. So I actually did two summers of research on Lebanese communities in different Nigerian cities, um, but found the research kind of frustrating because the Lebanese can be quite secretive. Um, so then I, I switched over to, to this project on, on markets in, in Lagos, but um, initially, the driving motivation was was variation in self governance among these ethnic minority trading groups. Excellent. Well, maybe just to, to develop uh, into that a little bit, maybe tell, can you tell us a bit about um, the the markets in Lagos that you've studied and how they work in a sense? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm I'm studying markets in in Lagos, Nigeria, and Lagos has about a thousand markets, and as you can imagine, they are quite varied. So some markets are maybe what you have in your head as, you know, a traditional African market where traders are selling like fruits and vegetables from the tops of tables. Um, And so for those markets, they'll typically be in a very clearly physically delimited area. Um, Yeah, so there, there are definitely those types of markets, but then there are also what in Lagos are called plazas. So basically just these small multi-story buildings. Um, You might have 20 to 50 traders in some cases, maybe, maybe more. Um, And those are also, I think, really interesting marketplaces. Um, The traders are similar in that these aren't big businesses. You know, the modal trader has no employees. Um, but the the kind of physical structure of the of the markets is, is different. So I'd say those are really the two types of markets. What Nigerians would call the traditional market, and then these these plazas. It's worth saying Lagos is is a very big city. Is that right? Yes. So how big is it? Um, no one really knows, but the estimate from the Lagos Statistics Bureau, which I think is the most reliable, is twenty five million people. Okay, and it's also I guess a relatively poor city. Yes. Um, though there is a lot of inequality. Um, so a lot of very wealthy Nigerians live in Lagos, but there is also a lot of poverty. Yeah, yeah I guess the, the markets that you're looking at, we describe these as informal markets. And may, maybe tell us a little bit what that, what, about what, that, what that means. Yeah, so I, in my head, I think about informality as a spectrum, where on the one end of the spectrum, you have 
the trader who is importing light bulbs and maybe he is importing a grade of light bulbs that technically is not allowed to be imported into Nigeria, but every other part of his business is super above board. So that's kind of one spectrum. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you have like a guy who's like smuggling illegal drugs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the markets that I'm studying are really closer to the light bulb guy spectrum. So they have traders that are informal in the sense that they are typically not registered with the government in the way that they should be. But in every other sense, they're actually quite formal. So many of them are actually have their shops on local government land. So they're paying rent to the local government. They're almost always paying taxes to the local government. And then in some cases, they're actually even paying taxes to the state government as well. So they're really informal in, in only the most nominal nominal sense. I mean, I think it is important that they're not registered with the government, but um, I think sometimes people have in their head that, you know, this is like a black market and that's not really what's going yeah, on. Sure. Yeah. So would most economic exchanges in, in Lagos or in Nigeria be in this informal context? Sorry, say that one more time. Well, yeah, so would most economic exchanges in Nigeria or, or in Lagos be in what you describe as informal, this informal type of context? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Um, Definitely when traders from other parts of Nigeria come to Lagos to buy things, they're typically buying from these informal markets. They're not, in general, buying from big wholesalers, which I think is really puzzling. Um, And I think it's kind of an open question, like why there isn't a more developed distribution chain in that sense. so when, when traders from other parts of Nigeria are coming to Lagos, they're not going to like a supermarket, for example. Yeah. Um, but there are there is a, a large part of the economy is not taking place in these informal markets. But I do think um, a large part of it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so you you went to Lagos and undertook field work. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about about that process and how that went. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, it was it was pretty overwhelming. Um, I think. You know, as I mentioned earlier, like one of the reasons that I was so excited to study traders was because I thought they would be easier to speak to than these really secretive Lebanese people. Um, But that turned out to not be the case. (laughs) The traders were actually just as secretive. And I had so many days where, um, you know, I would try to interview traders and I would have no successful interview. The traders just wouldn't speak to me. Um, Often the issue was that because these markets are so hierarchical, they felt like they couldn't speak to me without permission from from mm-hmm. someone, or they would say that yes, I'm happy to do the interview, but then they wouldn't actually say anything mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, so that was really hard and really discouraging. And it was at a time when the local currency was really strong. So it could be a day where I would spend like sixty dollars in taxi fare and you know feel feel like I didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then over time, I got I got better at it and. Uh, I realized that actually market association leaders were often really great people to talk with. And just by brute force, I was able to eventually find traders who would, who would speak with me. Um, and so then once that happened, it was, it was actually a lot of fun um, to just sit with a trader in their shop for two hours and watch them do business and then have them talk to you about, you know, what they were, what was going on with the transaction after it happened and talking to them about market association politics and local politics. Um, so over time, it, it became much more yeah. enjoyable. I mean, how do you think people received you as an outsider, someone from, I guess, from the, from the States, coming to Nigeria, talking to them about maybe quasi-legal activity in a sense? Yeah. Did that make a difference, do you think? Yeah, so there are advantages and disadvantages to being a white Westerner. Um, the advantage was that Lagos 
is not like many other West African cities that have like lots of NGOs and lots of Westerners. Um, for reasons I don't totally understand, Lagos actually doesn't have a lot of international NGOs, so it's it's more unusual um, to see someone like me walking around the markets. And I think to some extent that was actually really useful because in some parts of Africa, I've heard that there's like researcher fatigue and people are like, I've already spoken to, you know, 17 PhD students. Um, so in that sense, I think it, it helped me. The disadvantage was that um, a lot of traders did not believe that I was actually an academic. Um, so I heard stories of, you know, a Chinese person who had been walking around the market with the local fixer and the person said they were an academic. And then the fixer would come back to the market the next day and say, hey, I just want to let you know, that guy said he was an academic, but actually he's trying to get into the mobile phone market and he just wanted to know what prices you guys were selling things at. So people had been burned in that sense before by 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 foreigners, and I think that that made it a little difficult. And then, yeah, there definitely was this aspect of, you know, are you trying to figure out, you know, how much money I'm making so that you can inform the government and they can tax me differently? Um, so there was there was that as well. And I think there were probably other issues as well that I just don't even know what they were that were. Um, making people suspicious of me. Yeah, sure. But you mentioned these markets often exist on land owned by, by local governments. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that introduces sort of politics in Nigeria. I mean, maybe for people who don't know very much about Nigerian politics, could you give you know, an account of how it works, maybe the structure of the government there and um, how elections work, perhaps? Yeah. So Nigeria has a federal system of government, um, just like in the U.S., um, and at the level of the president, there is what is locally called informal zoning, um, or I think the technical political science term is consociationalism. So uh, because the country is about 50 percent Muslims, 50 percent Christians, very roughly, uh, the president has historically alternated from being from one of those one of those two groups. Um, and up until very recently, politics in Nigeria at the federal level had been dominated by one party, the, the PDP. But then in Lagos, uh, so Lagos is, is really special uh, because it has so much commercial activity at, that isn't really dependent on, on oil revenue. So Lagos and southwestern Nigeria have historically been dominated by a different party, a party that is now called the APC. And uh, that party has been has governed in a relatively progressive way over the past few decades. And there are a lot of interesting theories as to why that is. Um, so, you know, that's not to say that Lagos is perfectly governed, but uh, a lot of people see it as having a fairly reformist administration. And many people trace this to uh, the first governor of the most recent republic, um, Bola Tinubu, and he is a very wealthy businessman who is now locally considered kind of the godfather of Lagos state politics. And many people perceive that he has imposed successive governors ever since. Um, and so uh, now, interestingly, the presidency is also controlled by the APC. So this is the first time that that's happened. Um, so at the moment, the governor of Lagos and the president are from are from the same party. OK, and so I guess so local government, say, in, in Lagos, They'll be elected on, on what sort of basis? Yeah, so Lagos has uh, 57 local governments, though actually even that number is contentious because only 20 of them are actually recognized by the federal government. But uh, but for all 
practical purposes, they have 57 local governments, and the local governments are headed by elected chairmen. And the winner is typically from the the ruling party, the APC. Um, so often politics is really happening at the nomination process, not at the actual, even though they are, they do have popular elections. Um, but it's really kind of about the elites who decide who the APC nominee will be to run for a chairman in that local government. Um and yeah, then there are there are popular elections, um, and increasingly these races are getting tighter. Where the PDP is actually starting to get close to winning some of these these local elections, um, and sometimes these local government chairmen are fairly old people who are part of a traditional family and have you know long roots in a community. Um, and then other times these chairmen are actually quite young. You know, one that I met had started a civil society group before. And they're really reformist, and they have kind of really big plans for transforming their local government. Yeah. And what would be the key cleavages, if you like, or dividing lines in um, Lagos politics or Nigerian politics? Is it something we might recognize from, from the States or from the UK, or is it, is it something else? Um, so I think the main cleavage in Lagos is, is ethnic divisions. Um, so I think a plurality of... Um, a plurality of Lagos citizens are from the Yoruba ethnic group. And so uh, I'm pretty sure a plurality of the local government chairmen are also from the Yoruba ethnic group. Um, but there is a sizable Igbo and, and Hausa population in Lagos as well. And so there are divisions along along those lines. Okay, that makes sense. I, mean, that, I think that takes us then now to the to the heart of your uh, your work, in a sense, <laughs> which is the interaction between, if you like, the, the politics and the, the markets, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um I think the first question there might be, I mean, what does the literature tell us to expect about how politics and markets will interact in a place like like, uh, like Lagos? Yeah, so I think, as you were saying before, before we started this, um, I think the literature would lead us to expect that as the quality of governance improves, as the reliability of courts, as the strength of rule of law increases, that you would expect less of a need for, for private governance. Mm-hmm. Um, because private governance often involves, you know, like private contract enforcement, and that's just like a less critical service. Um, And so I think it was kind of um, an open question as to what the literature would expect with regard to... um, with regard to private governance when the rule of law is held constant. Um, And so that's what I look at in the project. So holding constant the state of Lagos um, and the federal government as well, you know, how can we understand variations in these forms of private governance? I guess that, that brings us to, what did you find? Yeah. <laughs> What's the, the big reveal there? Yeah, so the main thing I was trying to explain was, um, yeah, why some leaders who govern these market associations govern well and others actually extort from their own yeah. members. So some of these leaders govern really, really well. They do in-group policing. They share information about dubious suppliers who you should, shouldn't mm. trade with. Um, and then others, you know, don't do that at all. Mm. And so what I found was that in contrast to conventional wisdom, which I think would lead you to expect that, especially in a place like Nigeria, where the government has such a reputation for being so corrupt, you would expect that private good governance should thrive in the markets that are on private land because they're less vulnerable to government intrusion. But what I found actually was that it's the markets that are on local government land that are better governed. And I think what's going on is that it's actually the threat of state interference 
that's motivating this better private governance. Yeah. So you mentioned the market associations, which I've probably pinned down. What are the market? What are the market associations? Associations, and, and what do they do? Yeah. So market associations are typically just a group of traders in the market who were elected by other traders in the market to lead the market. Um, so. Most markets in Lagos actually have written constitutions that specify what the particular rules are for this. But typically, there will be every four or five years, um, all of the traders in the market will elect a market president, a vice president, a treasurer, a secretary, and a, and a public relations officer. And then the market leaders are primarily the liaison with the local government. So if the traders feel like the local government fees are too high, it's the market leader who is able to negotiate with the local government. Um, they'll also collect uh, fees for maybe utilities like light or trash collection. Um, and then in some cases, they do a host of other fantastic things that are really supportive of trade. But in some markets, it just kind of stops there. Yeah. I'm very curious about constitutions, I must confess. I'm going to ask you some questions about that. So th this may seem a bizarre, an odd question, but do they do they call themselves a constitution? Is that That's the phrase that they use? Yes. That's interesting. And I guess, uh, who, who would write the constitution? Yeah, it varies. Um, so I wasn't able to get a hold of that many of these constitutions because they were such valuable documents. Typically, they would let me take a photo of the cover, which didn't really have much text on it, but I yeah. and then I could for 10 seconds flip through it, but I wasn't allowed to like read it more than that. But in one case, I was actually able to keep a constitution and I have it at home. Um, and so that constitution was interesting in that it had actually just been revised. There had been like a constitutional reform committee um, and, uh, but it had been revised in kind of an upsetting way and that it had been revised to consolidate the power of the existing chairman. So it had changes with regard to term limits. Um, but typically the trustees of a market or the elders of a market would have responsibility for modifying a constitution. So these are people who might be current traders and very old current traders, or they're they're retired from their business, but they they were in the market for a long time. Yeah. So it's written by the elders, all the people who would be in control of the constitution. Is that right? Uh, I'm actually not sure who would actually write it. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, do you have a sense, and this might might be just this wasn't possible to get to know, I suppose. Do you have a sense in how people would, would consent and would people, how, how would they agree? If you like? Yeah, so on paper, it's very democratic. So if you want to make a constitutional change, you have to get the support of, I'm making this up, but like two thirds of the traders or something like that. Yeah. But in the market where I, I learned a lot about this constitution, uh, those votes had been achieved in a kind of sketchy way. So basically, this very predatory chairman had bought off the section leaders of the market Literally, one section leader told me that he brought them to a hotel for the weekend and wined and dined them and then gave them envelopes of cash and said, make sure your traders go along with this new constitution. And so they had perhaps, you know, pressured traders to vote along with it. Um, so uh, democratic on paper, but, you know, just as in any country, uh, it can be kind of undemocratic in practice. Yeah. So to come, to come back to, to the market leaders, so I think as you said, you felt that they were responding to pressure from, from politicians mm -hmm. in how they, they reacted. Um, and what sort of pressures were, were they exposed to, maybe? 
Yeah. So the primary pressure in these contexts is the threat of market renovation. So, um, and markets on local government land are particularly vulnerable to this. Mm -hmm. So with a market renovation, a local government chairman would basically, so the incentive for the local government chairman to do this is that the local government chairman wants a senior position in the state government one day. And the way to do that is to impress this godfather figure. What the godfather wants is for you to modernize your local government. And so that typically means, uh, you know, renovating these kind of traditional markets that look um, that look kind of old fashioned. But from the perspective of traders, a market renovation is a real threat because first you would be displaced while the renovation is ongoing. Um, and sometimes these renovations take years. Uh, and then, but more importantly, you're probably going to be um, priced out of shops in the new market because the shops will be much more expensive. So the prospect of market renovation, you know, and I'm, I'm ambivalent as to whether a renovation is a good thing or a bad thing, but from the perspective of the, of the market, the prospect of renovation is a real threat. And so as a way to fend this off, you can try to mobilize your traders to tell the local government, we're going to make a big ruckus about it if you do this. And even though the local government chairman might really want to modernize the market, they know that it's not going to look good for them if they're not seen as a leader who's carrying along members of their community. So they have to balance these kind of really interesting incentives. Yeah. So there's a sort of informal responsiveness to the politics. Would that be, that yeah, be right? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. So what, is the, what, what then is the relationship between the market leaders and the politicians? How does that play out? Yeah, so typically um, it's quite formal and they're both playing a game. So the market leader is going to try to, you know, overplay their hand, um, as is the, the local government. And so because many threats that each side might make might not be considered credible. The way to make these threats credible is for the market leader to really mobilize the traders to show that she has the support of, of all of them. And so that's why you often hear about markets, and not just in Nigeria, you know, you hear about this in many parts of the world, markets closing down for the day and the traders rallying at the governor's mansion or something like that, because that's a real credible threat because you've, you're giving up revenue for the day. Um, and it also shows that the market leader is able to mobilize all traders, which is not always the case, especially if he or she is, is predatory. Um, so these these rallies are really the way that the market leaders kind of credibly negotiate with the, the local politicians. Yeah. And this then has interactions or implications, should I say, for the governance of the market. So how does that work? I mean, yeah. And what, what would be the implications too, I guess? Yeah, so I think there are two things going on. So first, the market leader is going to be, under some conditions, incentivized to govern well and not extort when there are these threats. Mm -hmm. Because she knows that she needs the support of the traders to be able to help the market survive a renovation attempt. Yeah. So that's one thing that's going on. And the other thing that's going on is that often... In contexts like Nigeria, disputes in the market and various issues provide opportunities for people like the police to, to intervene and meddle and extract rents. And so in the face of those types of threats, the market leader is going to try to essentially keep her house in order as a way to keep the police out. So I think these government threats are shaping market leader incentives in, in both of those ways. Yeah. And the, the converse of that question, so in the absence of in the absence of those sorts of political threats, mm -hmm. how, how does how does a market leader tend to tend to behave? Yeah. So in the absence of those types of threats, typically two things happen. So first, 
is that the market leader can just act in a really predatory way. Um, so some people will ask, well, you know, why can't the traders, you know, fight that off? And sometimes they do, but it, it's quite rare. So you do see many examples, I think many more than the existing literature would suggest, of market leaders who are extorting from traders. But that's not always what happens in the absence of state threats. Sometimes you just see what I think of as like laissez-faire market leaders. So these are market leaders who aren't extorting, but they're also not providing any trade promoting services. They're not trying to reduce disputes because they don't really have any incentives to. So in one market I went to that had a kind of laissez-faire leader, uh, I would ask traders, you know, if you had a dispute with a supplier, is there anyone around here that you would call? Would you call the market leader? And they would say things like, ah, you can't call the market leader because she has a catering business outside the market. So she's never even in her shop. You know, she's not even here. Um, so I think those are two of the things that can happen when when markets don't feel like they have the prospect of government intrusion. Yeah. I must ask this, which is, what, did you find examples that were not consistent with that general pattern? Yes. Well, so in the survey that I did, uh, so I did a survey of traders that encompassed 199 market associations, and uh, not all of those market associations were, were on the line. And so I did visit after doing, in addition to doing pre-survey field work, I also visited markets after the survey. And I did visit one market that had that was not on the line. And that market was an instance of the market leader colluding with local politicians. Um, so in the face of state threats, instead of governing well, they sold the traders out and just colluded with the local politician. Um, and so I don't think that's that common. So uh, I didn't really have any like theoretical priors for what would explain that, but I think that's an area for, for yeah. future research. And did you have outliers at either end? So were there examples of, if you like, almost no formal governance with very, very good informal governance. And conversely, um, <laughs> the opposite of that, it would be um, very good formal governance without informal governance. Yeah, so I think I didn't really have any variation on the formal governance side because, of course, there's variation at the local government level, but the local government isn't the ones that are doing, like, contract enforcement. That would be the courts. And in any event, these traders, their transactions are informal, so they wouldn't, you know, be able to take advantage of the courts. So even though there is variation in whether local governments want to modernize these markets, so, for example, some of these older local government chairmen don't really care about doing anything. Um, so there is variation in that, and I do think that variation matters, but I didn't really have variation in whether some traders had access to better quality public contract enforcement than others. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, so that, that brings us to, to your sort of general conclusions in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I maybe do you want to just summarize what those conclusions were vis-a-vis -vis the relationship between formal and informal governance? Yeah. So I think, you know, some people have this view of the world that when in the absence of access to high quality formal governance, that private good governance will just emerge. And I think if that's your view of the world, then the policy implication is is very clear. It's extreme deregulation. But my view of the world based on this research is that actually the prospect of government threats can keep potentially abusive group leaders in check. And so in that view of the world, working within the structures of an organized state can actually be be preferable for private governance in, in some ways. Yeah. And you've sort of almost prefigured what I was going to ask then, which is just, and this is something I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, but, mm -hmm. but how does this play out in other contexts? I mean, 
do you anticipate or do you have you observed other examples that would seem to follow the same the same pattern? Mm-hmm. So I think the real scope condition here is regime type and the nature of the state threats. Because at some point, if state threats become so severe, it's not going to lead to good governance. It's just going to lead to co-optation or something like that. Um, So there's a really interesting book about the uh, Tehran Bazaar, the main Tehran Bazaar, and shows variation in private governance um, before and after the Islamic Revolution. And it shows that after the revolution, the threats from the state were so severe that it actually destroyed the kind of existing self-governance mechanisms that this market had. Um, similarly, I went to a market in, in Equatorial Guinea, which has a dictatorship once, um, and it was a, a market with mostly Nigerian traders, so immigrant traders. And that market was just, you know, because of the because of the regime type and also because of the immigration status of the traders, there was just there was just no way that state threats would ever kind of motivate market leaders in the same way that you see happening in Lagos. But that being said, I do think the argument has um, has has broad implications, and I think Nigeria, being a, a weak democracy, is is not that unique for much of the world. Absolutely. So in one sense, I guess what you're saying, if you like, is that there's not just a simple sort of downward sloping demand curve for informal governance, and that the sort of what determines the slope is the level of formal governance. It's actually more of a some sort of U shape, I suppose. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So the book uh, has a lot of case studies where I do deep dives into some of these markets, and and those chapters are my favorite chapters of the book. And more generally, I'm also working on a project with Alicia Holland about the politics of street vendor enforcement around these markets. So uh, many of these these markets have traders who are selling on blankets on the outskirts of the market. And the presence of these street vendors is a real collective action problem from the presence of the of the market traders because they would be better off if there were no street vendors in the first place because customers are sometimes just buying from the traders with the blankets as opposed to entering the market. But given that there are street vendors on the outskirts of the market, many traders will choose to collude with them and ask the street vendors to be selling their goods for them. So we're trying to understand what explains variation and how different markets respond to that dilemma. And last, I also have an ongoing uh, randomized control trial with Meredith Starts in Nigeria that's trying to evaluate a new financial product for traders that will that will try to solve some of these these contract enforcement issues with with a reputation mechanism. Great. Well, that sounds like great work, and we definitely look forward to reading about it and uh, maybe talking about it on the podcast in the future. Thank you, Shelby. Thanks so much for having me. 